Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org website on all of these occasions. Uh, for our in-house guests, we would ask that last courtesy check that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. And, of course, those watching online now or in the future are welcome to send questions or comments at any time, simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. Leading our discussion today is Diane Katz. She serves as a senior research fellow in regulatory policy in our Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. Prior to joining us, she was a, here she was director of risk, environment, and energy policy for three years at the Fraser Institute of Canada. Previous to that, she was director of science, environment, and technology from Michigan's Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Please join me in welcoming Diane Katz. Diane. Good morning. Thanks for coming. I'm going to just give you a few brief remarks and then uh, introduce our guests, our authors, and then we'll have a conversation. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg came to Capitol Hill two weeks ago to testify about the collection of information from his Facebook users' personal data um, by third parties. The takeaway, Zuckerberg effectively invited lawmakers to regulate his company and others like it, telling them that it is, quote, inevitable that there will need to be some regulation. That wasn't the message that many of us wanted to hear, from him or any other CEO, for that matter. But we shouldn't be surprised, as authors Emmett McGordy, Jane Robbins, and Aaron Tuttle explain in their new book, Deconstructing the Administrative State, the Fight for Liberty, quote, an enduring myth of American politics is that big business and big government are antagonists. Collaboration between corporations and government goes back centuries. In a paper last year, for example, University of Chicago professor Luigi Zingales described what he called the Medici Vicious Circle in which economic and political power reinforce each other, as was the case in the 15th century Florence. The Medici family, and countless others before and since, have used their economic power to gain political power, and in turn, their political power has been used to increase their economic power. Among the earliest cases in the United States involved the Bell National Telephone Company, today known as AT&T, and it's very instructive. Alexander Graham Bell received a patent for his phone on March 7, 1876. 
Three days later, he placed what now ranks among the most important telephone calls in history when he said to his young assistant, Mr. Watson, come here. I want to see you. In September of 1877, Western Union ripped out its telegraphs and began acquiring some of the 1,730 telephone companies then in operation. Daily calling average increased from four calls per 1,000 people to nearly 400 calls per 1,000 in a matter of two decades. This surge of competition prompted Bell to sue competitors for copyright infringement and to buy them up at a rapid speed. But the acquisitions troubled federal authorities who began mulling antitrust action. And in response, Bell officials proposed what subsequently became known as the Kingsbury Commitment. On December 19, 1913, Bell agreed to allow competitors to interconnect with its network. And this was entirely in keeping with the what was actually a brilliant strategy of then-company president <laughs> Theodore Newton Vale. The regulatory emphasis on interconnection cemented Bell's control of the telephone network nationwide. Public officials embraced Vale's motto of, quote, one policy, one system, universal service. By 1925, telecom rate regulation was in effect across most of the nation, and competition was either discouraged or explicitly prohibited. The regulatory structure was finalized when Congress created the Federal Communications Commission in 1934 under the Communication Act of that year. Congress authorized the new agency to impose service requirements priced at regulated rates. Any deviations in product or service required government approval. Thus, with the cooperation of state and federal officials, Bell secured its dominance over telephone service for decades to come controlling more than 80% of all telephone lines and assuming status as Ma Bell, part of the family. The same approach was also applied to electric power supply and water treatment, triggering creation of a massive regulatory structure to temper government-sanctioned monopoly power. In hindsight, open competition would have prompted new technologies and other innovations that instead took decades to achieve. Here and now, the Medici cycle is rampant, largely a consequence of the seemingly endless expansion of government and the administrative state. Emmett McGordy, Jane Robbins, and Aaron Tuttle are experts on the subject, so I'll introduce them now, and you can hear from them about this phenomenon. Emmett McGordy is a senior fellow at the American Principles Project and director of its program on federalism, and constitutional structure. He is also a fellow at the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and a co-founder of truthinamericaneducation.com. Mr. McGordy has testified before numerous state and federal bodies. He received his BA from Georgetown University and his jurisdiction, I'm sorry, doctor from Fordham School of Law. Jane Robbins is an attorney and a senior fellow with the American Principles Project Foundation. She has crafted federal and state legislation to restore the autonomy of states and parents in education policy and to protect the rights of religious freedom and conscience. Her essays have been published in a variety of print and online media. 
In addition to her groundbreaking research highlighting the problems with Common Core, Ms. Robbins has testified before Congress and 12 state legislatures. She is a graduate of Clemson University and Harvard Law School. Erin Tuttle is a citizen activist who led the effort to pass legislation that resulted in Indiana becoming the first state to reject the Common Core Standards Initiative. She has written extensively on the deficiencies of the Common Core Standards, and her work contributes to the national movement against federal intervention in education. A graduate of Indiana University, she worked in the broadcasting industry before devoting herself full-time to her family. Authors, to quote from your book, electronic players will, oh, I'm sorry, start that over. Economic players will always, always learn to game the system. Has the expansion of the administrative state exacerbated such gaming? And if so, how? Um, well, I mean, whose fault is that? Is that what you're asking? Like, whose fault is the gaming of the system? Or no, has it gotten worse as as the government has you know um, expanded and and has become less accountable? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, as as the as the you know when the authority and the power of agencies grow, so does its authority to regulate, which incre which inevitably increases the number of regulations. So an increase in the number of regulations and requirements, of course, increases the complexity of agency programs and what is required for compliance. And this actually obscures rather than clarifies um, what the compliance requirements and so forth are to participate in that program. And this complexity necessitates a lot of uh, legal and uh, financial firms to come in on behalf of whoever it is that wants to participate in that program, and that leaves out firms that can't absorb that cost. So, yeah, I would say that it does increase the gaming because it, it narrows the field of players. Yeah, and, in, and it increases the point of intervention for for government, and, and at every point that, that government can, can intervene, there's an opportunity for um, – for interests, let's say in corporate interests, for purposes of this discussion, for for interests to to try to sway the decision making to their advantage. So, um, given the many many examples of corporate collaboration with government, if not outright lobbying for regulation, we have to surmise that there are benefits that exceed costs for the business interests that engage in it. Uh, could you explain the benefits that corporations derive from regulation and other government interference, and also what benefits do the regulators derive from this kind of collaboration? Um, well, I mean, that's the whole purpose for the myth, you know, that they're antagonists, is that big business really does benefit um, from, you know, the administrative state and the whole whole process. Um I would say that um, if anyone is familiar with the new market tax credits, that's a program um, that is intended, you know, to do a sort of what the agency says it's what it wants it to do, which is to encourage private capital investment in eligible, you know, impoverished, low-income communities. And these tax credits are actually allocated by the U.S. Department of the Treasury under a competitive uh, application process to investors 
who then make qualified equity investments um, to reduce their federal income tax liability uh, by claiming the credit. And the use of these credits in real estate projects provides a benefit not only to the investor receiving the credit, so that's one benefit to, to big business, but also to the real estate developers who receive um, uh, the investment as well because when they take those credits in, they obtain like below market interest rates on loans, lower origination fees, and more flexible borrower credit standards, um, lower than standard debt service coverage ratio. So it's a really good deal for them. But more importantly, in many of these cases, they don't even have to have any equity in the project. So, so it allows them to do it without the risk. But in, a, in a broader context, um, regulation, as we generally know, has a dampening effect on competition. Um, and so maybe we could talk a little bit about how, um, why corporations, you know, how it affects their bottom line when they're able to suppress competition, what the dynamic there is. In, in short, the, the dynamic is uh, regulation can, uh, a lot of regulation will, will raise um, the, the point of entry for corporations. So if you have something that's heavily regulated, then an entity needs uh, a huge legal staff um, uh, to, to wend its way through the regulations. You need kind of, uh, um, lobbyist types to, to make sure that the regulations are, are drafted in a way beneficial or most beneficial to the, to the company given the statute. Uh, you need, you need, uh, accountants, um, and other compliance staff, um, to make sure that, that on the back end, the company is, is abiding by the regulations. So the more of those schemes you have, um, you're you're raising the the stakes and you're you're pushing out your entrepreneurs and upstarts. Um, a lot of corporations and CEOs kind of like that. It's it's giving them a, a bigger playing field. Um, what does it do on prices? Well, it it's um, drives prices up, both from driving competition down, but also your you're increasing the cost of doing business. So the the, the, the benefit is not only that you um, eliminate potential competitors from the market, but you are um, controlling the um, prices that you're able to charge by virtue of not having competing products that would drive down drive down costs. And one thing, Diane, when you um you talked about Facebook, um and the possibility of regulation coming in that in that arena. Uh, uh, Jonah Goldberg actually wrote something a couple of weeks ago about um, one aspect of the Facebook thing that, that is interesting. When Mark Zuckerberg testified, he talked about um, the trying to to censor, if you will, hate speech on the social media. And they said, well, how do you do that? First of all, Ben Sass said, what is hate speech? And, you know, he wasn't quite sure, but anything he didn't like, apparently. But um, they would talk, he talked about using artificial intelligence to figure out what is being posted that shouldn't be posted and, and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, we can expect, probably, once the regulations get worked out, and, of course, Facebook is going to have the big seat at the table on that, that uh, the regulations would probably encourage at least artificial intelligence for for um, 
reviewing the things that are posted. And if that happens, Facebook is the only one that has the money right now to really invest in that. So the idea that there is going to be a lot of competition springing up to compete with Facebook may not happen if they get the kind of regulation that they want. And then if you could uh, talk to the, the issue of what, does, what do regulators gain um, when corporations um, suppress competition and, and regulators corroborate with the regulations? Well, I think you're um, – that gets to the to the point of, of the underlying deterioration of the constitutional structure. Um, and, and I think that plays into this in, in a very big way. As, as everyone knows uh, and as every school child used to learn, um, our, our constitutional structure is set up with a series of checks and balances – um, both uh, within the federal government and also um, the, the states are set up in, in the same way. Um, and then there's there's tension between the federal government and the state government. Uh, and, and I'll say two of the big reasons why things are set up that way is is one uh, is for the protection of individual rights uh, and um, and then a second reason to kind of tie it into the, the first is that ultimately um, what, what um, the, the founders intended was citizen-directed government, both with, both with respect to the states and the federal government. Um, and, and that, the, the deterioration of the constitutional structure has, uh, I, I think the, the first casualty of, of that is we really – are lacking citizen-directed government in any meaningful sense anymore, um, and so it, it, it's kind of like the 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 human body when the systems get out of whack, um, person gets gets sick, and that's kind of where we are with the constitutional structure. So uh, to to answer your question specifically, what we have now are are regulators, and in many instances, regulators gone awry. awry. Um, you know, they're, they're, um, ending up in, in, in very, uh, troublesome campaigns, if you are really, if you look at, at some of the things the Internal Revenue Service has done, some of the things the EPA has done, um, and many of the things the Department of Education has, has done. You can't really find any connection, uh, to, um, to citizen uh, input. Citizens aren't driving the actions of these, um, of these regulators, um, and, and Congress really isn't to a large extent either. They're kind of an entity into themselves, and, and, uh, even when you get a, a president and, and both houses of Congress who are intent on reforming, and it's, it's still very, very difficult. So these powerful, you know, corporations, um, give these regulators um, backup, so to speak, because it's in their interest to maintain this system by which, you know, they're um, exercising, you know, um, non-constitutional powers. And part of it is is very fundamental, practical, what's in it for me um, uh, kind of mindset. Uh, a lot of this comes from, our examples can come from the world of education because that's what we've worked in for a long time. 
And uh, if you look at Common Core and how it got implemented uh, without any citizen involvement to speak up, without any legislative involvement to speak up, uh, one thing you see is that the big companies in the education world, Pearson and, and publishers like that, have spent a ton of money whining and dining state leg- state um, education officials, taking them to various conferences, and then, of course, they buy the Pearson products and to, to go into the schools. And then we were talking with a, um, a gentleman who was the chief school superintendent in one state who was not on board with all that, and, and his state did not do Common Core. And he said, if you think about it, if you think about a state school superintendent who is looking beyond his current employment, where is he going to go after his term expires? All of the well-paid jobs are with the big publishers or with the related foundations, the Gates Foundation, um, the Trade Associations, the National Governors Association, Council of Chief State School Officers, those groups that were pushing all of this. And so if you're looking to get, um, to burnish your credentials to be hired by one of these groups, you don't buck them. You do what they want you to do because it will serve you down the road. It's a, a form of the revolving door. And exactly. And I also think there's like an agency goal that they want to accomplish. They want bigger government. They want more spending. They want more regulations in order to increase the power of their agency so they can control and centralize public policy decisions within their agency. And so they have that goal. And in order to meet that goal, they have to be able to sell their policies and programs across the board. And the business community gives them that buy-in on their programs, right? And they do that by including these provisions, subsidies and tax abatements and incentives and so forth, And then in order to get them to sort of be the champion, right, for their agenda and to get more buy-in support from the community at large because a lot of the cost and a lot of the burden of regulatory agencies falls on the states and localities and businesses that aren't connected enough to get that, you know, perk. And the way that the business community does it is that they sell it as economic development. They actually take big government programs, which are antithetical to our founding principles and the, you know, limited government and capitalism, and they package them as sort of this boost that we need to actually further capitalism. And I think that Republicans in general, and we work a lot at the state level with grassroots people, and they're always like, well, I don't understand why the Chamber of Commerce, for example, would be supporting that program if it wasn't going to, you know, really improve the economy. And the truth is, is that their business interests are not the same as free market interests. And generally, they are proposing big government programs. And if we could get that message through to Republicans that they need to reevaluate when the chamber talks about what economic development is, it may be, but it will be targeted. And it will be targeted to specific businesses. And when they do that, it it shifts the resources away from perhaps a better market approach that might be more beneficial for that community. As far as, like, contracts – or, I mean, sorry, grants, like uh, transportation grants we were talking about earlier – You know, they say, we have to get this new light rail system or this bus rapid transit system in here because our economy needs it. We need to connect workers to jobs. And and if we do that, we're going to have all this growth and we're going to attract all these millennials from Chicago. I live in Indianapolis, so, you know, everybody, you know, wants to attract, you know, talent from, from bigger cities. And the truth of it is that once you get the grant to build it, you eventually have to, to increase your taxes, right, to subsidize the cost of it. Because if you live in Indianapolis, if you've ever been there, no one takes transit. It's flat. You can get 
from a suburb to downtown city in 20 minutes and afford a really nice home that would shock anyone who lives in D.C. or New York. It's very affordable, right? So transit doesn't work there. It may work somewhere else, but it doesn't work in areas like that. So the cost to the city far exceeds that benefit. Yeah, I think, you know, when, when we get away um, within the, the federal framework, when we get away from the the truly national federal goals, uh, things get worse. I mean, with, with, with defense, uh, there's, there, there's, it strikes me as competition among the vendors. We're going to provide the, the best, uh, personal armor, or the best weapon system, and we'll, we'll show you the Department of Defense that ours work better than anyone else's. Um, when, when the federal government gets away from that, when they get into areas of, of education, uh, th- there isn't really anything the vendors can provide. I mean, we've we know how to educate children. We've we've known for a thousand years. It's very clear what what works. It's uh, very very um, uh, in in K twelve. It's very content rich. That's what works. Um, uh, you know, you want strong literature. You want math being taught by the standard algorithms with lots of practice for children. Uh, we've, through this breakdown in the constitutional structure, we've been rejecting that in the United States. Other country, countries pick it up, Japan and Korea, and and then they're doing fabulously, and we're saying, well, why can't we be like them? But at the heart of it, what what's going on with this big business thing is these, these big entities are, are sitting down saying, well, uh, education spending in the United States is 600 uh, to 800 billion dollars a year. Uh, we should be able to get a, a piece of that pie. Well, we can't provide the the equivalent of a new weapon system. Uh, so we're going to invent something and convince government that that it needs to buy this. Uh, and you look at at what they're inventing. Well. You know, you have your dumbed down standards, but two things, uh, also things like, uh, you really look at a lot of what they're trying to push on government. It comes down to, well, we think children need more screen time. So we have these, learning. yeah, so, you know, and it, it, it goes against all, all evidence, but this, this is the breakdown of, of the constitutional structure. We're going to convince these bureaucratic decision makers Invest in this. Well, parents don't want it. Well, no, we're the experts. Let's invest in this. And then require it. Yeah. Require its use. And you see the same thing in, in terms of, of the physical build out of the, of the cities. Stanley Kurtz is here has, has written a lot on that as well. Well, we're going to convince the, the appropriators and decision makers, uh, that you have to invest in these things, these big projects. Let me play devil's advocate for a minute and ask, um, that in gaming the system, as you call it, aren't, aren't corporations just protecting investors' best interests? And also, given the predatory nature of government, don't we want them in there as checks against government? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think probably we all like to, to chime in on on this. Yeah, it, I mean corporations certainly have um, because they're they're owned by individuals, right? So they have. They, they have, um, free speech rights and, and, um, the right to, to protect their property interests. Um, so that, that's good. Um, you know, it, it becomes 
um, counterproductive or, or not good uh, if their goal is is not just to protect their interests but to to gain an unfair advantage on their competitors or to convince government to spend money on something that really doesn't further the common good. Um, and and then, you know, we, we see especially uh, the last 15, 20 years sort of this corporate CEO uh, hyperactivism. Uh, we're going to come in and, and get involved in uh, a, a social issue, even though it really doesn't direct my company, but uh, I feel like I'm, I'm called to do that. Uh, global so, warming. What are some of the other? Yeah, things global about? warming, guns, um, education, um, religious freedom, bathroom policies. Uh, you name it. They're getting this hyperactivity. Well, do they have a right to? Well, well, yeah, they they have a right to. Um, so what what's the the solution? It's clearly hyperactive. The problem is, and this all gets back down to the, the breakdown in the constitutional structure, um, citizens have been pushed out off the, the stage. They've been el- elbowed off the stage, and so what's left? One of the big players left are big corporations, so they have outsized influence. And you look at even our, some of our, our most conservative uh, um, governors and, and senators, and they're, I think, sitting around thinking, oh, well, you know, I've I got to say something about education. Um, and, and here's Exxon and Rex Tillerson telling me I've got to sign on to Common Core. And, and uh, they, they're the big players here. So, yeah, I'm for Common Core. Um, the, what, what we've, we've lost, and, and, and not just Common Core, but, but these workforce development programs. Well, we have to spend money on these workforce development programs because these big corporations want that. What we've lost with the citizens being pushed off the, the stage, um, what we've also lost is the defense of capitalism. And, and that may seem trivial, but capitalism is always viewed as something that rests on our bundle of individual rights. And, and in fact, the, the GOP um, platform in 1984 and 1988 uh, strongly defended capitalism, and it used that hate word capitalism. It strongly defended it as, as being tied to our individual rights. Now we, we don't defend it. I think part of, part of the reason we probably don't defend it is, is uh, really deep down these, these politicians are thinking, yeah, but these things I'm signing on to – Really aren't uh, 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 in, in furtherance of capitalism. They're kind of undermining capitalism. Well, I'm, I'm not going to use that word. Free market. That sounds amorphous, um, you know, and, and non-ideological. It's, it's, it's description, uh, an ambiguous description. Um, so I think that's that's part of what's um, going on. One example of what Emmett was talking about. I live in Georgia, and um, we are one of, for better or for worse, we're one of the semi-finalists, I guess, for the Amazon headquarters. And y'all up here, same thing. And that completely controlled this year's legislative session, completely, 100%. If Amazon would even hint that maybe they didn't like a particular bill, such as a bill that would protect faith-based adoption agencies, then that bill bites the dust. No one would even consider it. Uh, there were articles written in nationwide publications about our hero senator who was carrying that bill. 
um, that Amazon probably wouldn't choose Atlanta because Atlanta might have this faith-based adoption bill that would discriminate. And um, so they might go somewhere else. And, and our hero senator, Senator William Ligon, he told me, he said, you are looking at the man who is so powerful, I brought down Amazon by myself. He said, if I had known I had that kind of power, I would have run for governor. Um, but that's that was it. We couldn't do that. We couldn't get a RIFRA. We couldn't anything that, that even hinted of the kind of social conservatism that is very strong throughout most of Georgia, not in Atlanta, but in other areas of Georgia, never even got off the ground because they were afraid of scaring off the big boys. And, and you mean this this puts us on the road to fascism is what it is it's not capitalism it's it's um corporations investing in government government investing in corporations it, it's that that unity there um and you know that that's why we have to get back to first defending capitalism and discussing what it is it really your both of your remarks really um highlight the confusion that's often um, that we often see between business interests and free market interests. Yeah, but they're they're not the same in, no. by any no. means. No, and a lot of times, like these projects we're talking about, I'm, I'm going to go back to transit because it's it's on my mind. But you know, the Chamber of Commerce in Indianapolis is saying, you know, it's good for the economy, like I said earlier, because it's going to connect workers and employers because. What they want are the surrounding suburb areas. They want low wage or low um, wage earners to come and do low wage jobs that they can't fill. So when they talk about there's all these unfilled jobs, you know, that they can't find laborers for, well, in my opinion, and if we're really going to have our country with the principles of capitalism guiding us, we would look to the supply and demand, right? If you can't find workers, perhaps increasing their wages might bring them out there. That might make a worker willing to take a slow bus all the way to where your business is. So in some senses, these these investments in transportations are actually about wage control, right, um, which is antithetical to, to capitalism, and as well as the um, workforce training type of stuff. Um, now, I'm not totally against all vocational education, but what they're pushing right now in the schools requires students to give up so much of their high school you know, maybe two semesters of it in order to go and do these apprenticeships or, you know, on-the-job training. And what that replaces for the employer is doing a six-weeks on-the-job training. They want taxpayers to pay for that because they don't even want to do that. So, you know, to expect an individual to give up so much of their education is really damaging to the citizen because what if that job becomes non-existent? What, what we would be doing for that student is that we would be educating them right into unemployment. And why are we doing that? To save a corporation from having to pay for six weeks of on-the-job training. I think the country needs to take a really hard look at vocational ed because it is being pushed really hard. Yeah, and, and, and this is very, very, uh, very, very sad development, in, I think, in, in the United States. Um, I mean, vocational training, the sense that Aaron is talking about as, as being good, is is – Training that that doesn't uh, interfere with uh, the acquisition of a needed knowledge base for any citizen, um, but the 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 real danger is, and and you see in, in in public discourse now is there's no distinction between the employer's interests and the individual's interests. 
it's it's assumed that there's an identity of interest uh and and there's there's not right i, I mean uh any employer if an employer is going to post a, a a job opening what's an employer want <laughs> at least 20 good candidates to pick from and maybe interview five and select one and if someone leaves we'll go through the same process again that's what the employer wants what does the individual want well i'm hands down the best i i command here it, it they're, they're not identity of interest but our public discourse in our programs and in a, in a lot of these um, workforce development efforts uh, are are premised on the idea that there's an identity of interest. Well, and also, I'm sorry, it's a substitution of the of a, like a collective good for as opposed to the the individual good. Right, but I would say with the educational training, if you look in your states, we'll have these things called career pathways, which you know are different. Um, ways in which children can earn through high school different badges for different industries, different jobs within industry. And the way that they decide um, which pathways will be offered is through these regional boards where Chamber of Commerce, people from industry, people from nonprofits, labor unions, you know, they sit on these boards and they sort of determine that based on what the region's needs are, industrial, um, you know, strengths are. And what will happen, I think, in the long term is that business will control that in a way so that they always have more than they need, right? A supply of more than they need for specific jobs. And why do they want that? So they don't have to increase wages. And we can only have economic growth and true prosperity when we have wage increases relative to the rest of the economy. And that's been a real problem uh, in the country. So I'm going to finish up with one, one more question so that we can take a couple of audience questions. Given the size of some of these corporations, I mean, they rival nations, really, yeah, in, in terms of their economic clout and even their political clout. You know, our system of government, could, can it withstand that? I mean, it, the size and scope of the, and power of these corporations probably was not something that um, the framers necessarily contemplated, although maybe they did. I mean, it, it, that's an open question in my mind. But, um, you know, can the, can can our system of government, as it's currently um, you know, organized, um, control that? Well, I, I I would say as as it's currently organized or, or in practice, uh, the answer is no. Um, if we get back to the way the the uh, framers intended, the answer is yes. Um, but that that requires. Um, returning government to you, the people, as the president said in his inaugural address. And we do that how? Uh, well, we need to get, I mean, change in regulations is is good, but we really have to, to start changing um, the, the laws underlying regulations. Um, in, in short, what we have to do is so the, the progressives had this plan, uh, and they've they've implemented it um, very well over the last hundred years. That what was needed to be done was take power and authority away from the people and away from the states, um, and and move it to the federal government, and then within the federal government transfer it from Congress to the administrative state, and then even within the administrative state, you want to shield it as as much as possible from. Uh, from elected people, from the president, 
um, in, and this is, you know, the, the founders and, I mean, I'm sorry, the progressives believed that the, the founders system was antiquated, that the, uh, the checks and balances were slowing down, um, the science of administration that they had developed, uh, and that we had gotten beyond, um, the issue of individual rights. We were too concerned about that. So that, um, because, because they thought that the, the bureaucrats could really through, uh, so, so-called scientific analysis decide what was good and what was needed and that they could implement it. And all this political apparatus was slowing things down. Uh, so in short, that's, that's what we have to do. Can I, anybody have questions? Yes. Oh yeah, right here. Also, I want to ask you to um, please identify yourself and actually ask a question. Um, my name is Daniel Berninger. I'm a telecom entrepreneur, and I'm living this – I'm a lead plaintiff in a Supreme Court case challenging the FCC's ability to move from its original uh, jurisdiction created for AT&T as we started out um, to the Internet. And, and AT&T – uh, in this case, as in 1913, uh, is in favor of regulations. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm not, not in favor of the FCC regulating. Um, and so I'm just offering support to your notion, you know, why does this, you know, why is there an alliance between corporations and government? And the answer is that uh, for the corporations, the highest value is control. So you wouldn't think AT&T would be interested in regulations, um, but to control the coercive power of government is awfully appealing. And I would also add um, stability and consistency, which is why a lot of, of um, regulation has ended up in the federal at the federal level because companies don't like what they con- consider. And I, it's understandable a patchwork of different rules and regulations across all the fifty states. Um, but that's just not how we work. Well, I think with the amount of government spending we, we do for these agencies, I mean, get over it and, and just do it anyway. You know, it's not like they're under-resources to deal with the amount of patchwork systems and so forth. I mean, if that's part of – that's sort of the, the cost of business, right? And if that's the best system, then they should pay for it and handle it. Well, and but there, the other the other comeback is that, you know, if the patchwork is such a problem, the likelihood is that, that we don't really need as much as they're trying to do. Right. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Hi, uh, Carl Golovin, uh, domain reference and the fed.info. And just trying to bring a focus on the, the monetary issue, uh, constitutional or otherwise, as it uh, relates to these circumstances. Two different kinds of monetary system. The constitutional one, where gold and silver coin, some things are hard to counterfeit, circulate. Uh, governments periodically tax them out of the economy and then spend them back in, but then they continue to circulate. It limits how much administrative processes can be piled upon the taxpayers before the taxpayers you know, won't tolerate it. But as uh, Andrew Jackson wrote, his farewell address of 1837 when he ended the second bank of the U.S., he warned us never to let there be another central bank where he said the largest corporations, the banks, and the politicians would conjure more and more credit money or paper money into existence until – we found that the wealth of those who labor had been stolen and our most precious liberties had been either uh, sold or, or bartered away. And we've kind of gotten there, I think. I wonder, could we, returning to a constitutional unit of account, even if it you know, might be wirelessly, you know, like instead of bit coin, bit gold, you know, at least there's an, it would be an honest unit of account 
instead of just something that can be magically a, created. I'll just jump in real quick and then let you answer. But if that's a great question in light of the recent efforts to crack down on any type of competing currency at this point. So and, go ahead. And Dr. Paul, Ron Paul, Congressman, advocated uh, creating competition in currencies, which you know, people will gravitate towards an honest unit of account if they're given, uh, well, if it's not withheld from them. Yeah, I, um, I don't think any of us up here are experts on, on that, but American Principles Project is, that's one of our, our founding issues is, is, um, to, to have competing currencies, um, and particularly, uh, gold, I think, um, and, um, but I, I can comment on it's, it's no coincidence um, um, when all of that really started to happen um, in the early 1900s. And it's all part of the progressive uh, move to the, – they, they wanted to sort of – really wanted to change the constitutional structure, how it operates. They knew they couldn't mount a, a, a populist effort to get rid of the Constitution and bring in a new one. So they were looking for ways, uh, workarounds to do that. Part of what they realized is that is to have a, a big bureaucracy, uh, you needed you needed money and you needed resources. Uh, so they had to, to come up with a way of getting that, and and that's what they essentially uh, figured out uh, to do is if if they can control the the money, uh, then they can devalue the currency uh, to help them spend more money. And of, and of course, that hurts. That hurts savers. You know, the value of your money um, goes down. So, yes, sir. <clears throat> Excuse me, Ben. Uh, ben Murray, U.S. Senate. Um, you talked about the framers and the organization of our of our government, of our regime, and the Constitution. And um, you know, I think of some of the checks and balances that were put in place. Madison talks more explicitly about it in the Federalist Papers. Um, where he talks about making ambition, counteract ambition, also tying the interest of, you know, people who are making decisions, passing laws to the interest of the people, right? So interest of the politicians to get reelected or to have power. In order to do that, he needs to promote the interest of the people, right? That's the idea with representative government. With the administrative state, what I see is that politicians, you know, they like the setup, right, because – they can continue to get elected and kind of live this life up here in D.C. and have that power but not take responsibility, right? So it kind of undermines the founding the founding principles. A um, couple questions. Number one is did the founders just make a mistake? Was this an oversight? Did they ever imagine a world in which um, politicians would be able to maintain their power by not making political decisions? And number two – how do we – I know there are good le legislative proposals out there like the RAINS Act to try to resolve some of these things, but it goes back to the same problem. I mean, they're never going to – I don't want to say they're never going to pass that, but I mean with, these, with this incentive structure in place, why would they – why would it, why would 60 senators ever – you know, there are a few good principled conservatives, but why would 60 senators ever want to give re, – return responsibility back to themselves, right? Like how, practically how do we make politicians – have the will to do that. Well, we would say get rid of the filibuster in the Senate because there are enough in the Senate to pass that bill had, if that wasn't a hurdle that they, you know, had to, had to meet. So one thing is 
getting rid of the filibuster. It's procedural, but effective. Yeah, and, and the, the I mean the the filibuster. It, you look at how it it works. It actually uh, quashes debate. You have less debate and less discussion with the filibuster. And and, um, and Byron, right? No one has to vote on it. Byron York wrote a, wrote about this about a year ago, saying saying that um, this filibuster is, is really controls everything legislation. That's why we're not really getting meaningful legislation through. What what happens even in the House? Um, congressmen sit down and think, okay, we we need to get sixty votes in the Senate. Uh, so what they start thinking is, oh, how are we going to get that? So legislation starts getting diluted uh, even in the House and in the Senate. As it moves more and more toward that 60 votes, you start losing support. So from the conservative side, you start losing support from conservatives because the bills start becoming more liberal. And and in the, in the end, you get uh, either no bill through or just kind of a wishy-washy bill or just a huge, humongous uh, bill. That, that almost anyone can say, well, I'm not going to vote for that because it's, it's too liberal or someone could say, well, I'm not going to vote for it because it's too conservative. Um, and, and, um, I look at it more practically since we're talking about the administrative state. Administrative state was largely built up between 1913 and about 1979. Um, and, that's when the filibuster rule um I, I would say that the filibuster rule in in its current form um was i think nineteen seventy five at which point it was decided that senators don't actually have to filibuster they don't actually have to stand up and give a speech in order to filibuster they can just have a paper filibuster and say i'm going to filibuster that that bill um and so by not ha- by not requiring them to to stand up and speak. Um, it is, it, it's really raised the bar for ending it. So you look at that in terms of the administrative state. We've had this whole administrative state apparatus being built up. And then the, the rule, the filibuster rule, uh, gets made even stronger. And that's locking in place the, um, the administrative state. I mean, to, to deconstruct the administrative state, you really have to get legislation through. This filibuster uh, rule is safeguarding it. Um, and I, I would just say one, one other thing. How does a filibuster rule work? It really, when, when Republicans are in power, it's a two caucus rule. Nothing's going to get through unless both caucuses really like it. I mean, with minor exceptions. The reason why is because the Democrats are all wedded to, uh, they're really wedded to progressivism. So they have a much stronger caucus. We're not wedded to, say, capitalism. We have a weaker caucus. So when the Democrats are in power, it's, it's a, uh, it's the majority and let's peel off a couple of Republicans. I think that's What about term limits? Do you think that's a a necessary condition to get? You know, I was always a supporter of term limits until you get acquainted with the administrative state. And you realize, and, and with working with, even at the state level too, um, with legislators, by the time they do a couple of terms, they're just, getting the feel for things. I mean, they're just, you know, starting to understand how, how to do what they want to do. And when it, if the administrative state knew that people would term out, they wouldn't give them one bit of attention. They already don't. And they're there for what, 80 years, some of them, you know? So, I mean, the idea that that's going to stop it, 
I, I don't see that as reigning in the industry. I see that as, an, as a way to expand that, the power. Of the that's business. a good point. You know, we've we've worked with legislators across the country, and and so many many legislators have no staff. In some states, they don't even have an office. In, in Iowa, for instance, um, and they they get these bills come in, and and they may seem simple, but if you look at it, they tend to be very very complex. Uh, matters. Um, if it's anything meaningful, why? Because it, it, it's really tied to federal activity in one way or the other. So, so they're very, very complex. So uh, legislators will they, they sit down and say, "Well, who can I go to to brief me on this on on this issue?" Uh, and one of the first places they turn, of course, is to the state bureaucracies. And um, and the the state bureaucracies, uh, bureaucrats tend to to have the upper hand, and they know it. We've had legislators say to me, "Well, yeah, I went and I talked to the to the the bureaucrat, and I, I was lied to." Yeah, there's this asymmetry of information between represented elected officials and the administrators and the regulators and the regulatory agency, and that asymmetry of information um, really damages. A, a representative's ability to make a sound decision on legislation. But that also goes to the, that asymmetry of information also goes to the, the important role that corporations play because they do bring a certain expertise in, um, you know, particularly to legislators who might not otherwise get the intricacies of, you know, NAC standards or whatever. Right, right. Okay, we have time for one more question. Have we just done such a great job that we've fulfilled all of your questions about this? Anything else you would like to add? Anything? Well, I, I encourage you, the, the corporate collaboration part is just one section of the book. Um, it covers a great deal more about the administrative state. And um, I'd like you to join me in thanking our authors. Thank you for having us. On behalf of my co-authors, we'd, we'd really like to thank Heritage and Diane for, for hosting us and, and thank each of you for, for showing up. Thank you very much. Thank you.